Good morning. My name's Casey Shutt. I, I was here about a year ago. In fact, as I re- recollect, Karnakuk had just happened, and you guys had just gotten back from that. So whenever that was last year. Uh, but it's good to be back. Uh, I'm, I'm currently a pastor at City Presbyterian in Oklahoma City with a view towards planting a church in northeast Oklahoma City. And uh, you, can, you can learn about that church plant effort. We've got a very um, creative website. I'm surprised that it was even available. It's okcchurchplant.com. So if you're interested in, in following what's, what's happening there, you can sign up for email updates at that website. If you recall, you probably don't, it's, it's been a long time, but last time I came, we, I, I spoke, I preached on Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's call, the call of Abraham. So I've got this week and next week, so I thought what I would do is go back to kind of set up that call. What happened? So we're looking at creation this morning, and then next week we'll look at Genesis chapter 4 and look at this topic, huge topic of sin. But this week, creation. I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity is not real popular in the West. And of all the, uh, the, the doctrines that, that Westerners find offensive, what do you think is the most offensive Christian doctrine? Is it a Christian understanding of, of human sexuality? Is it a vague and obscure trinity? Is it a Christian understanding of, of money or the unborn? I think perhaps the most difficult doctrine for non-Christians in the West is the doctrine of creation. Our belief that God created the world from nothing. Ex nihilo. And he created it in an orderly way. And he gave it purpose. He created me and he created you. And he gave you a very particular purpose. It's not, we don't choose, we don't create, we don't construct our own identities. But they're given to us by this creator God. And creation means that God has a claim on all of our lives, right? Because we're always in the arena of creation. Have you ever handled or touched non-creation? No, you haven't, right? Everywhere we go, we're dealing with, with creation. Our doctrine of creation means that God has a claim on all of these things that surround us. The doctrine of creation roots our spirituality, keeps it grounded, and it extends God's jurisdiction to everything. And let's, let's just be honest. We find that offensive. We, humanity balks at that. We want to construct our own identity. We want to set the terms of our own lives. We, uh, this, a few weeks ago, we, our family took a trip to California to visit some friends. And we finally mustered up the energy and, 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 and ability to go on this trip. And so we go to California, and the highlight of the whole trip, we had a great time, but the highlight was our trip to Disneyland. And, you know, on the surface of it, it seems, it, it's difficult for me to imagine that we'll have a good time, right? The costs are high. There's people everywhere, these long lines and packed pathways and costly food. And yet, despite all of that, it was a blast. We had a wonderful time. And one of my favorite, I mean, it, it, it's, it's incredible to behold 
the excitement and energy that that place produces every day of the year. The cleanliness of it, the friendliness of all the staff. But one of my favorite moments in the whole Disney experience that day was when we would be walking and one of the characters would show up. Mickey, Minnie, Mary Poppins, Darth Vader. One of the Disney characters. And whatever you were doing, you know, we'd be making our way, hustling over to Space Mountain. We had a fast pass and we had this appointment, very narrow window of time. We had to get there and then Mary Poppins would show up and we would immediately stop in our tracks. And everybody, there would, people would very slowly, they'd get real quiet and sort of walk up, approach Mary Poppins or whoever. A line would form, adults, children. Um, it didn't matter. Everybody was in line to get their moment with Mickey. And I was watching this sort of standing a little bit on the periphery of it all, watching it. And everybody was quiet. There were smiles on people's faces, but nobody was really saying anything. And there was a handler who would kind of help handle the relate, like, you know, help people get in line and get their picture. And then they'd take a picture and then off you'd go. And as I was watching this unfold, it, the whole experience was, it, it was sort of sacred. <laughs> it was a sacred part of Disney. Um, it was almost like a religious experience. And then I began thinking more broadly about the whole Disney experience. And I think that's one of the reasons our culture loves Disney. is because it, it provides us with a, with a very comfortable, easy-to-digest religious experience. It offers hope to us and the possibility that when you wish upon a star... It makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Disney lifts us to an ideal, better place, but it makes no demands upon us. And it doesn't interfere with our lives in any way. It doesn't intrude on us. It's sort of a spiritual experience on our terms. And we find that attractive. The rules of Disney only apply in the magical kingdom. If you're, if you're a board member, let's say, of a, of a board and you're discussing an important decision, there's difficult deliberation, and then in, in the middle you break in and you say, I think we should just take a moment to wish upon a star. You would be laughed out of the room, right? Because the rules of Disney, they only apply in Disney. And the same could be said of polytheism. The, the world in which this creation account sprung into, into the world was a polytheistic culture that believed in many gods, right? There was the god of the river and the god of the moon and the god of the forest. And there was something attractive about that as well. These gods had limited jurisdiction, right? You could kind of keep them in their little corners and spots and navigate your way through their jurisdiction and live kind of the life you please to live. Just like the rules of, Disney's, um, of Disney only apply in the magical kingdom, these polytheistic gods could be kept in a small, well-defined corner of one's life. But Christianity is different than that. Because we believe in a creator God who has made everything. And not only that, he's redeeming everything. Abraham Kuyper famously said that there's not a square inch of the universe that Jesus doesn't say, mine. And it's his. And he has something to say about it. And our culture finds that intrusive. We, that compromises our precious freedom and autonomy that we hold so dear. As we look at this foundational text, I want us to see it 
for the good news that it is. That God created everything we see. That he created you, he created me, and that's good news. Specifically, we're going to see three things. First, the grandeur and goodness of God in creation. The grandeur and goodness of God in creation. The second thing we'll see is the crown of creation. And then the third, the crown lost and found. So the grandeur and goodness of God in creation, the crown of creation, number two, and number three, the crown lost and found. And one quick caveat. Anytime you get into, we're going to read the text here in just a moment. Anytime you get into this topic of Genesis chapter one, uh, questions about how this account relates to science are bound to spring to at least some of our minds, right? And I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I find that debate to be interesting. I kind of enjoy digging into that, but I'm not going to get into it this morning. Um, I think that there, 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 let me say this. There's a pastor that gave an illustration that I think makes the point well. Let's say that when we told our kids we were going to take this big trip to California and we were going to fly there and we were going to go to Disneyland and we were going to maybe go to Legoland, we were going to go, we, we actually did, so that was good, and we were going to go to beaches, we we're going to do all this fun stuff and we explained this trip and then uh, our kids say, uh, what airline are we flying on? It, is it a direct flight or will there be a layover? And where's the layover going to be? How long is the layover going to be? Those questions, they kind of matter, I guess. I mean, they're, they're, they're pertinent, but they don't, they kind of miss the point, right? Way back in March. And I think something similar could be said. This is a theological account, creation, and it's, deal, it's really dealing with a different set of questions than the questions that science asks. So we're going we're gonna to focus on a different set of questions this morning. Let's read Genesis chapter 1. Beginning at verse 1, it's a lengthy section of Scripture, but we'll read it together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were, that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing, uh, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that your, uh, your word, which uh, unlike uh, the grass that withers and the flowers that fade, your word endures forever, we pray that it would perform a work upon us, that your spirit, by the power of your spirit, you would um, do a, a recreative work upon us as we consider your scriptures. Pl- speak through me, and I pray that your spirit would, would help me and also help the congregation this morning to hear uh, what you have to say. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, the grandeur and goodness of God in creation. Did you see it? We see a a mighty king and Lord creating. And this is very different from other creation accounts in the ancient Near East at this time. Um, The gods that made the universe, it it was almost sort of accidental, the Babylonian account, for example, says that, that humans were made out of the blood of slain gods. That there was this war of the gods, and out of that war emerged creation. Right? Violence is the backdrop. 
other creation counts coming out of this age, describe creation as a, as a mother God delivering a, a child through pain and suffering and difficulty and out pops creation. Well, in this account, God simply speaks. He, he articulates a thought and it becomes real. It becomes a mountain. It becomes material, a river or tree. He has this incredible command over creation. It's not a struggle. But he's, so he's, he's a mighty God, a mighty king, but he's not an insecure power monger in this creation. Like if you and I have power, we want to we kind of hoard it for ourselves and not let any of it go. But what God is doing is he's, he, he's a mighty king, but he's generous. He's sharing his power. There's this repeated phrase throughout the, the, the account, let there be, right? Let there be light. Let there be. Let there be. That tense in the Hebrew is called the jussive tense. We don't have anything like it in English. Um, we, you know, we have an imperative. Go clean your room. Tie your shoes. Eat your lunch. Right? I, I'm a parent. <laughs> you may, all those examples are straight out of the life of a parent. Uh, but, you know, an imperative, right? Go do something. It's not that. It's in the jussive sense. Andy Crouch, a uh, Christian writer, says this. That, um, that the jussive is not a direct imperative. It's simultaneously more powerful and less controlling than that. Right? The jussive, let there be, it's a refrain. It's a generous refrain. Maybe it's even better to say, it's a gen- God is giving a generating power. He's creating more power. He's, he's giving them a command, but it's a command. All of creation, he's giving a command, but it's a command to be, to flourish, to be what you are created to be. And not only that, but the whole account of creation is organized around God sharing his kingship with creation. The way the thing is organized, in in days one, two, and three, God creates spaces, kingdoms, we might even say. And on days four, five, and six, he creates kings, to fill those spaces. So and actually, he's, what he's dealing with is, is verse 2. If you look at verse 2, it says the, the earth was without form, formless and void. The Hebrew is tohu wavohu, right? There's this problem. The, 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 God makes the earth, right? He's creating out of nothing. But he has this earth, and it's disorganized. It has no form, and it's empty. And so on days 1, 2, and 3, he deals with the formlessness, Day one, he creates night and day. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. And day three, he creates earth and vegetations. And then on days four, five, and six, day four, he creates the star, the moon, and the suns to fill the night and the day, the kings to rule those spaces. And you see that in, the, in verse uh, when he creates light. It says to, the greater to rule the day, the, the lesser to rule the night. Right? And then day five... He creates the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, right? To fill those two spaces, sky and sea. And then finally on day six, he creates earthlings, things that live on the earth, culminating in the creation of of people. And we'll we'll come back to that in just a moment. Do you see what he's doing? Here's the point. God is lovingly stewarding his might and power 
to creation. He's sharing it with creation. How can he do that? Why would he do that? There, there are clues. In verse, well, in verse 26, when he creates man, it's, there's, there's an interesting pronoun that's used. You may have noticed it. God says, let us, a plural pronoun, in reference to God, make man in our image. Right? This is alluding to the fact that God is a triune God, a trinity. That there's one God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see the Spirit hovering over the waters in verse 2. Right? And we know from the New Testament that Christ is, is the creator. So the, tr- the triune God is involved in this creation, which is really important. Okay, really important. That all of what we see emerges from the deep security and joy and love that exists within the triune God. Right? God's not this lonely God and he just has no friends and he needs... He needs some friends, so he creates people, so he's not so lonely anymore. Uh, he's not, doesn't have this unmet love need, and he just needs some love, so he creates the creation, so he can have some people give him attention that he so desperately needs. That's not what's going on at all. Rather, the, 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 the love and the delight that exists within the Trinity overflows in creation results. We emerge out of the love of the triune God. And you can see it. You can see it in creation. Do you see it? We can fall asleep to it. I, we were just at a, a funeral yesterday, a service for a, a friend of ours. Her brother um, just passed away from cancer. Long battle with cancer and extended stays in, in, in a hospital. And she remarked that when he came out of the hospital, one of the last times he was um, released, he um, said... To his sister, who was speaking, as our friend, said, the, gr- the grass, he just, everything, creation was just popping off of, in, into his senses. Everything seemed so alive. The gr- he was like, it's remarkable how green the grass is. I can't believe how vivid these flowers are. The sky, it's, the, it's so brilliant, brilliantly blue. He was just amazed at creation. We can fall asleep to it, but you see it. You see it when you see an Oklahoma sunset or a puppy's wet kiss, the smell of fresh cut grass in the summer, coffee, chocolate. Creation, it, creation doesn't just meet our needs. It is delightful and wondrous. So food, we, we need it to have energy and to remain nourished. But even more than that, it's delightful. It's enjoyable. It satisfies us beyond just what we need physically. Trees emit oxygen that keep us alive, but they're also fun to climb. The ocean is teeming with life that sustains human life on earth. But it's also beautiful to just sit and watch and listen to. There's a bumper sticker um, that you may have seen. It says earth, and then in like red letters or different colored letters it says A-R-T. Right, so earth is art. It's kind of what the bumper stickers say. Well, if it's art, there's an artist behind it. And the more attuned we are to the beauty of it, the more alive God comes to us. C.S. Lewis was an atheist uh, before he became a Christian, before he, obviously before he believed in God. And his, his greatest difficulty was that he, kept, he was awake, attuned to creation. 
and he felt as though he had to like wrap the caution tape around all of his experiences because all of them seemed to point to a creator. And he finally got to the point, he said, I can't do it anymore. I have to believe in God. Not only is creation beautiful, but it's also vast. Light speed is 185,282.4 miles per hour, which is really fast. Um, if, so if we were traveling at the speed of light, we could make 30 round trips between New York and Los Angeles in a single second. Now, and when you consider that these stars are thousands and thousands of light years away, it's mind-boggling. And not only are they far away, they're huge, these stars. Betelgeuse, which is a big one. It's not the biggest, but it's a big one. If it was an empty jar and we poured uh, balls into it the size of planet Earth at the rate of 100 per second, do you know how long it would take to fill that empty jar of Betelgeuse? 30,000 years. <laughs> it's incredible. And and Psalm, and here's the thing, Psalm 8, we, we, we sang about it earlier. David, David asks an important question. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, even Betelgeuse, what are we that you are mindful of us? Who, who are, what, what are we as people? And we get an answer to that in Psalm 8 as well as here, verse 26, humanity. Um, God, God gives us this call. And this brings us to point two. The crowning feature of creation is people. It's people. And it's all escalating towards the creation of man and woman, God's image bearers. Which is especially important for us. We wrestle with purpose. In fact, we're dying from a lack of purpose at an unprecedented rate. Uh, USA Today just in the last couple of weeks came out with a, a story, and the headline was this, Deaths of Despair from Drugs, Alcohol, and Suicide Hit Young Adults Hardest. And the article is explaining that particularly 18 to 34-year-olds are, are dying from purposelessness, from a sense of having no purpose, from despair. In fact, Deaths, drug-related deaths in this, uh, in this age group is up 107, or 108%. They've increased. So this is a major problem. Now, for the last 100 years or more, we in the West have sought to try to get God out of our lives. Right? We don't want him interfering with our work, our morality, our sexuality. And in the mid-1900s, Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher, who's an atheist, said this. He said, man, man's origin, his growth, hopes and fears, loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. No fire, no, hero, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, 
are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation be safely built. That's pretty, that's pretty depressing. Russell was wrong, right? Because we've, that's what we've been building our lives on for the last 50, 60, 70, 80 plus years. And we're miserable. If we have no purpose, we have no freedom. We, we, we are crushed under the weight of our, our objective to make meaning for ourselves. We can't do that. It crushes us. And we don't have to because we have a purpose. And creation declares our purpose. Verse 28, the cultural mandate. God blessed people, verse 28, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature or every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? God has created us to co-reign with him over creation. We are called to live um, as his steward kings over creation. To rule and to reign over it lovingly, right? It's not a call or command to, it, the word is have dominion, um, but we kind of think of that in negative terms. It's not to sort of exploit creation and just dig up all we can and get everything we can out of it. It's, it's not that because we came from creation, right? Out of the dust we were made. So we are embedded in it in a way that it behooves us to, take, to lovingly steward it, to take care of it, to build cities, to make art to make music, to play sports, to do all the things that we're doing with God as the supreme Lord over, over it all. That's our call. But there's a problem. There is a corner of my yard that no matter how hard I try to tend to it, it's just out of control, right? I can't control a little nook of my backyard, much less Beetlejuice, the star or the grizzly bears, or whatever. There's all sorts of pockets of creation that are outside my ability to steward and to control. In fact, it, it fights back against me, creation. And let's just put aside creation. Our own marriages, our own parenting, our family life, our relationships, at work, we find difficulty, pain, strife. We feel futility. In all of these relationships, so what's wrong? Third point, humanity's crown lost and found. The crown lost and found. So you, you see, we read the quote earlier. I'm going I'm to read it again. God makes this beautiful work of creation. It's interrelated harmoniously because God is king. And here's how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it. We read it earlier. In the beginning, God saying everything into being. For the joy of it. He set the whole universe dancing. He was in the center, at the heart of everything. And then she asks, and by the way, that comes from, she wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible. She also has a devotional for kids that are a little bit older. Um, I think it's Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. That's the title. of. That's where this comes from. Well, that's chapter one of Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Chapter two, she asks this question. What if the planets put themselves at the center instead of the sun? And the answer is cataclysm, right? 
that happened. The planets did. We, we put ourselves at the center, and creation has been thrown out of orbit as a result. When we sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, it disrupted the harmony, the dance of creation. Creation still sings, and we can hear its beauty. Um, I, lo- I love movie soundtracks. You know, if you ask me, just as important as Steven Spielberg and Christopher Nolan and Terrence Malick are names like John Williams and Hans Zimmer, um, James Horner, these guys that write the soundtracks. Because the soundtrack really makes the movie in, in a lot of ways, in my opinion. And what's always interested me is that we never question the intrusion of a, of a song or music in a movie. It seems natural somehow. And it is, right? Because there is a soundtrack to our lives, and it's the song of creation. But here's the problem. We often don't hear it, one. And even if we do, if we try to join in that song, we sing horribly out of pitch. In a week, we're going to return to this, this problem of sin. But for now, let me just say this. The crown has been lost. And what God seeks to do in the subsequent chapters of Scripture is restore what was lost, to once again reestablish his kingdom over a redeemed creation. And he sent Jesus, his king, to do that work. And there's a moment in Jesus' ministry when he heals a blind man. This is in John chapter 9. He, he, he does something interesting. Because, I mean, Jesus is doing all kinds of incredible things. He's healing people remotely. Go home, your daughter is healed. Right? But in this particular episode where he's healing this blind man in chapter 9 of John's gospel, he spits on the dirt, he makes it into mud, and then he puts the mud on the eyes of the blind man. He didn't have to do that. Was, was there anything special in the mud that made it work? No, he's teaching us something through how he's doing that. The word, the Greek word used there is palos. It's a, it's a Greek word that's used often in Greek literature, uh, as well as the, old te- the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Greek literature, it's, it's almost always used, often used to describe creation in the Greek myth, how, how creation came about. And even in the, Septuag- the, old, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the dust, we were made out of palos, the clay. And Jesus is saying, by doing that, he's saying, I have flowing through my veins recreative power that I came back not just to redeem but to recreate. Revelation 21.5, he says, behold, I make all things new. And he's doing that. He's, he's doing that right now. But not only does he have recreative blood flowing through his veins, he also has redemptive, salvific, merciful blood flowing through his veins. And upon the cross, he, he poured himself out His moment of glory was a moment where he was pouring himself out to us. He was ripped apart so that we might be put back together. He poured out his his blood for us so that we might be filled with his mercy and grace. On the cross, Jesus experienced the full fury and anger of humanity upon him. The cross was was an awful means of execution. The Romans tried to figure out what is the way in which we can kill someone that strips them of all of their dignity, all of their humanity, and makes them subhuman. And their answer was the cross. 
stripped of all of that. And he experienced the anger of the crowds, the anger of both Rome and his own people. And then he experienced as well the, the, the holy and righteous anger of God. All of it was being vented upon him on the cross. He was, we might say, decreated so that we could be recreated. And not only that, but he invites us back to our original call to rule and to reign, to share the crown. Because Christ, he was raised from the dead, he's, he's been exalted, and now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, where he rules and reigns over all of creation. But once again, he wants to share that with us. Hebrews chapter 4, the, the author says that Psalm 8 is really about Jesus, that he's the one through whom everything is put underneath. But Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says something very interesting. We're going to look at that as we, as we close. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives a prayer at the very end of the chapter, verse 22. He says this, that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. The church is, verse 23, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That the church, Paul says, somehow completes Christ in his rule over all things. So we want to experience the, what we were created to do, the cultural mandate. Under Christ we can, as we, as we somehow fulfill and complete his rule over creation. In the meantime, he is extending his rule in our hearts and making us more like him. And that's good news for us this morning. Listen to what Bruce Waltke says. This, is, uh, this quote is, is on the front of your bulletin. It's the second quote. He says, God, God steps creatively into the primordial abyss and darkness to transform it into a magnificent, ordered, and balanced universe. Those who submit themselves to the Creator's rule are assured that their history will not end in tragic darkness and chaos, but will continue in triumphant light and order. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are a good and mighty God um, who loves your creation, demonstrated it so powerfully through your Son, who is the, the image of, of you. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that you've given us redemption, that you forgive sinners, and you invite us back, um, back to be what we were created to be. And we ask that you would help us to live well in light of those realities. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.